If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Some of our most difficult moments in life become our best or greatest moments in life. And why is that? Well, when we have some situation that comes upon us that's difficult to deal with, when we were children, we had our mom or dad that came along and said, you can do it, son. You can do it, daughter. And many times as we get older, we face many different hardships that maybe others do not understand. That loss of a loved one may be one of the lowest points of our lives, but it also becomes a great reminder of how much we need other people. The reality is none of us were meant to live life alone. And yet so many of us neglect actually meeting with others who would help our spiritual walk. What's interesting is that God designed the church for the believer, just as he designed the woman for Adam and Eve in Adam's story in Genesis. He knew it was not good for him to be alone. God knew that for us as believers in Jesus Christ, that we are not to walk this path alone, that we need the church, the local community of other believers, disciples of Christ. The title of the sermon this morning is Enduring Together. And as we open back up in Acts chapter 14, we see that Paul has just been stoned and left for dead. But he continues to the next city and finds community there. There are certain particulars that we ought to follow if we want to endure together, church. And we're going to clearly look at that here in this text. Number one, as Paul goes and moves to the next city, make disciples. Verses 21 through 22 and 24 through 26. Number two, appoint leaders or elders, if you will. Verse 23. And number three, involve the congregation. Verses 27 through 28. Let's, let's start with number one, make disciples. Verses 21 through 22 and 24 through 26. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Skip down to verse 24. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. You see, Paul and Barnabas get right back to preaching the Word of God, right in the next city. Just 60 miles out, further southwest, the eastern part of Galatia. Paul and Barnabas are about one thing and one thing only, and that is making disciples. They do not neglect to do that no matter where they go. As we've mentioned before, a disciple is one who progressively learns the Word of God to become a mature follower of someone else. To disciple someone is helping a believer learn to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A disciple in its most practical manner is a student or apprentice of someone that they desire to emulate. Which is why if you yourself are a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to set that example for others. If you do not know Christ, you cannot be a disciple maker. You have to be a follower of Christ first before you can have someone else follow along with you. 
So think of these practical implications if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, fathers. What does that look like in our homes? What do we emulate for our children, for our spouse? What about mothers? What, what, what do we show our children when it comes to discipling them? Do we show what it looks like to submit to Christ in the way that we have arranged our home? What about grandparents? You know that you've raised your children, you have grand, grandchildren now that you get to invest in. Think of what, how that looks. Think of the implications of you being a disciple of Jesus Christ and how you want to portray that to them. Leaders in the church, we're going to get to that in a moment here, but how do we portray Christ to those around us, to those that we want to help in their walk with Christ? You see, you can't give someone what you yourself don't have. The little knowledge that you have of Scripture will be the only little knowledge that you can pass on to someone else. Which is why before the going gets tough, and I'm talking we have things that are ramping up in this culture, and you have to understand that that's true. You need to be prepared ahead of time. There is no last-minute quick study for that test. All right? I know a lot of us, we used to wing it in high school. It doesn't work that way in real life. When it gets tough, you need to be prepared already, ahead of time. It does not work the way that we think it does at times. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians think, well, when that time comes, I'll be prepared. And that time occurs, they're not. Which is unfortunately what happens is many eventually falter in their faith. Would a person just watching your life without saying a word to you and you saying a word to them, if they were just to analyze your past week, would they see that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Would they see that you value who Jesus is? If they just stood by and watched silently your whole week, what would it look like? You see, many of us, we tend to find confusion in other people's lives, right? We look at people's lives and say, they're saying that they're like this, but they really live like this. The question is, how are we living? Do we line up to what we expect from others? Ultimately, do we line up in what God expects from us? You see, just because you and I pray over the meal does not make us any better than many other religious sects out there. Just because you and I decide to spend a few minutes in prayer where we're really not even thinking through what we're asking of God does not mean that we can't be just ritualistic. Our, our walk with Christ needs to be a genuine walk. How much of prayer this past week mentioned the gospel and going out to others and reaching them for the kingdom? By way of reminder, discipleship itself is intentionally equipping believers with the word of God through accountable relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. We've talked about this before. Remember, in the Hebraic mind, one's deeds must follow one's word else they are false, empty, and counterfeit. If what you're doing doesn't match up to what you say, it's counterfeit. It's false. It's fake. To the Hebraic mind, to the Jewish mind, quality of one's life was more important than the knowledge one possessed. Don't take that to mean you don't increase in your knowledge of God, because Paul reiterates that many times. But the point is, is your life has to match up what you know. If you want to grow in your knowledge of Christ, then you need to grow in your maturity and applying to the Word of God as well. 
To the Hebraic mind, faith was not only a mental assent, but rather continual action that followed in line with the confession. You see, many Christians today, they tend to think, well, I prayed this prayer when I was 10 or 15 or 30 or 40, and it's like, that's it. I'm good. Scripture doesn't know any of that. Scripture knows a continual process and a walk of faith. And unfortunately, many of us have been taught that if we just pray this one prayer and we live like anything else, it doesn't really matter if it's lined up to Scripture or not, we are now saved, guaranteed. And Scripture tells us all the time to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. And see if we're lining up to what Scripture says. A true disciple of Jesus Christ cares what he says, not what his opinion is. It wasn't enough for Paul to know that he knew about Christ, but he had to share the gospel with others and build them up in their faith as well. You see, Paul made it a point to help new believers grow as disciples in Jesus Christ. The process of discipleship is to continue beyond us. Listen, believer, if you let the, the gospel message stop with you, then you've missed the point of the gospel message. It was never for you to hold on to. It was for you to share. The gospel message was always delivered to you because he, God wanted you to deliver it to somebody else. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians are more excited about the latest fashions and iPhones that they want to share, share with others how incredible this new technology is. Yet when it comes to Jesus Christ, he's nowhere to be found in their conversations. We're so willing to talk about sports. We're so willing to talk about our paycheck, that bonus we got for, during Christmas, but so little of our time is spent impressed with Christ and what he's done for us. You see, what are you most impressed with? Usually it shows up in what you talk about. What, what value you put on something will come out in what you talk about. Paul made it a point to help new believers grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's not to terminate with you and me, as I just mentioned. It's antithetical to Scripture to keep it to yourself. You are to be a light, church. You are to shine that light to others. You're not to hide it. Paul, remember, he disciples Timothy. Timothy then disciples other faithful men, and those faithful men are to disciple others. The process is to continue. Paul in this text not only finds it important to make disciples, as we see here, but he continues in appointing elders or leaders in the church. Number two, appoint leaders. Verse 23. Look at what it says. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, Paul and Barnabas, as they're coming back and preaching the gospel in Galatia, and particularly in Derby and Lystra, they find young men that they input into, Timothy and Gaius, two young men that they develop into leaders in the church. The word particularly used here, elder, in this case, elders, is essentially found in Scripture interchangeably used with a few different words. We have elder, presbyteros, overseer, episkopos, and pastor, poimen. All refer to the same office and are used interchangeably in Scripture. So here's the question. How do we know that they're the same thing? Well, the qualifications for an overseer in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and those for an elder in Titus 1, 6 through 9 are very similar. So that's one way we know. 
In Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, we actually have a stronger case for that. Let's read this. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. And notice, Paul is telling him to do what he's done here in Acts. And appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless, so he's using bishop here as well, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict." You see, in, T in Titus 1, Paul uses both terms to refer to the same man. Presbyteros or elder in verse 5, and episcopos or overseer in verse 7. The best case, though, for all three used to describe the same person is in Acts chapter 20, a few chapters later that we haven't gotten to yet, in Paul's farewell. In Acts 20, verse 17, and then we'll jump down to verse 28, Here's what it says. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And Paul's going through this farewell address and skipping down to verse 28 says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. All three of those are used in that passage. Knowing these terms are used interchangeably, let's keep going here. What is the responsibility of an elder? So we know that these words are used interchangeably. What essentially is the responsibility of an elder? One, one of them that was already mentioned is that they are to be a shepherd or a pastor. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, here's what it says. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. An elder is to teach his people, pastors and teachers, by the way, are used together in this text. He's to protect, he's just to love his flock, his church members, if you will. He's to care for them. He's to care that they don't fall astray. Which is the reason why many times sheep do not enjoy what the pastor brings. Because the pastor will bring something that convicts them, and they don't like it. Truth be told, every shepherd that God has called to be a pastor of a church, if you will, also has God that calls him out on things that he may not like to deal with either. Because he's under the great shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. So, the responsibility of an elder is to be a shepherd or pastor. It's also to be an example. We just read the Titus passage. We're going to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 in the New Living Translation. Look at, look at what it says. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he aspires an honorable position. So, a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. 
For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer, because he might become proud, and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him, so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. So a pastor is to be an example, an example to his flock and outsiders as well. That means that a pastor is to have certain qualities in him that demonstrate to the church that God's called him to this. But a pastor is not just to be an example, he's also to lead. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So you see, a pastor is not just to be an example, or an elder is not just to be an example, they are to lead the church. And unfortunately, what tends to happen many times is when an elder or a pastor in the church makes a statement and says, church, we need to do this as a body. You have some that tend to go, amen, let's do this. And then you have some that are very hesitant. And then you have some that are just straight up, they reject it entirely. Folks, we need to be understanding enough to know that scripture here, when it says the pastor or the elders to lead, that there are things that many times you may not see long term. I know that certain men in my life, as I've, as I've worked under them and even actually ministered under them, they've seen things I've never seen. They saw a lot of the things that we're seeing today, culturally, years ago. And unfortunately, many of us, we tend to go, well, that's going to be 25 years from now. Or that's going to be when my kids are growing up. And folks, we are heading at a very fast pace to destruction as a nation. We've been heading down that path for quite some time. And if you haven't seen the speed up in the last few years, then you haven't been paying attention. Which is why it's important for the church to understand that those that God has placed in authority, they're doing it for your good. They're doing it for your good. Church, it's hard sometimes to have you understand that from my heart. Sometimes it's very difficult for me to be able to point some things out that I know God's Word clearly says, and I know a lot of other churches, they don't really want to talk about it because it's controversial almost. But God calls us to certain things, and we need to do certain things, and we don't have an option. It's either God's way or it's no other way. All the other options should be off the table. We don't get to just kind of manipulate what Scripture says. The key to all of this, though, that's missed by many in the church is that Paul and Barnabas appointed elder or elders? Elders, plural. This is the normal way this word is used throughout Scripture, actually. In Titus 1, verse 5, we're just going to run through these. Appoint elders in every city. We just read this. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Acts 20.17, we just read that earlier. From Latius he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. 1 Peter 5, verse 1, the first part. The elders who are among you I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. 
And James 5, 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You see, there are more texts than even these, but essentially they stress one thing, that there is to be a plurality of elders in the church. The question then becomes, how is this to be laid out in our local church context? Well, this is something that we are looking into further detail as a leadership in this church. And it's a point of discussion that's already been started at Sovereign Grace Church. But as as in the case of Paul and Barnabas, I want to encourage you to realize that you still have a role to play in all of this. In fact, number three... Paul makes sure to do this. Involve the congregation. Involve the congregation, verses 27 through 28. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. You see, as important as it was for Paul and Barnabas in their missionary journey to make sure that they would continue to preach the gospel, it was also important to involve the congregation that had already accepted Christ and become disciples. It was important for them to notify them of what God had been doing in their ministry. This leads us to consider, what are the congregation's responsibilities when it comes to this text and other passages of Scripture? You see, Paul knew that it wasn't just enough for him and Barnabas to go about their missionary journey. He had to go back to the brethren and report to them, give them an update, encourage them. So what are the responsibilities, if you will, of the congregation? Well, here's one. Everybody needs to start with this one, and it doesn't matter whether you're an elder, a deacon, or a regular congregational member. You are to make disciples. This is not different for you than it is for Paul and Barnabas or any of us that are leaders in the church. This is for all followers of Jesus Christ. They are to make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So church, you don't get a pass on making disciples. That is a commandment. That's a part of the process that you are to be involved with as well. And and let let me also put this statement out there and make sure that we understand this clearly. Supporting a missionary does not neglect the fact that you need to do it as well. It's a very dangerous thing to fall into and say, well, I gave money to a missionary to do this, and I myself don't need to do it. Folks, we are not to shirk that responsibility. That is something God's commanded all of us to do. We're all to make disciples. Here's another one. What's the responsibility of the congregation? To gather regularly. To gather regularly. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. You've heard this verse many times. It's that important. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another. It doesn't stop there. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So church, are we to gather less or more based on this text? More. Unfortunately, many of us gather less the more difficult it becomes. Gather regularly is a responsibility of the congregation. Church, I cannot tell you how obvious it is at times when you've been away from the church for a while. It is obvious to people that you don't think it is. It is obvious to those that have known you for years and you've been outside the fellowship, you've come back and we've noticed, man, you've been gone for so long. And we know it's hard. We know it's difficult. And I'll tell you that this last year has not been easy on any of us. If I'm to be perfectly honest with you, there are moments I didn't want to come show up either. But I know it's essential. It's essential to the faith. I've also got children that I need to lead by example, that God calls me to. So you gather, to gather regularly, what else are you supposed to do? What's your responsibility as a congregation? To follow the leadership of the church. Hebrews 13, 17, we read this earlier when it dealt with elders, but here's your end of it. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. This is one of the reasons why it's important to find a church that lines up to the Word of God. It's important that you can then align to that leadership. This is unfortunately one of the dangers of the modern church movement, where there's a neglect of solid biblical leadership to where it's intentionally vague what God means in His Word. It's intentionally vague on God's stance on homosexuality, on life itself, on raising of children, you name it. There are many churches that are vague. They don't have any of God's standard clearly spelled out for their people. If the leadership of a church ordains a woman to preach, it's already going against the standard of Scripture, period. I know that many churches today find that to be offensive. But I would argue that they've, they've elevated themselves beyond the Apostle Paul. And last time I checked, Paul wrote the Bible. You didn't, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not as inspired as he is. This is one of the reasons why progressive Christianity is so popular today. It adjusts to the latest trends in the world. In fact, progressive Christianity is always only a few steps behind the rest of the world. Which is one of the reasons why you've seen this throughout. The world accepts a certain sexual deviance from Scripture. The church lags a few steps behind and eventually accepts it as well. Unfortunately, what saddens me today as a pastor and an elder is that when you warn people of the danger of not raising their children by the Word of God and the principles found here, that many look at you and think you're legalistic for doing so. Let me tell you, folks, there's a huge difference between legalism and living holy for God. And don't you dare blur the two. It's disgusting what churches do with that. Oh, it's being legalistic that you're not allowing your children to watch something that should be absolutely not tolerated in the home. 
That's not legalism. That's living a holy life before your children. Unfortunately, in today's culture, preaching straight scripture comes across as hateful to many. Know what the church teaches, and once you do, submit to the leadership in that church. If you know what the church teaches is straight from the Word of God, then you ought to submit to that. If I'm not teaching Scripture, if I'm not preaching from the Word of God, you ought to leave this church. I'm that straight up right now. If I'm teaching you something that's contrary to what God's Word clearly reveals, then you ought to leave and go to a church that teaches you from the Word of God. And here's a point that's not done much in the church, which is actually a responsibility of the congregation. Practice church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Everybody knows this text. And then we'll, we'll jump to Romans 16 in a moment. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So we see a process that we're to work through when conflicts or sins erupt in the church against one another. Number one, someone sins against you, you talk to them in private about it. You don't bring it up to the pastor first time. Man, that would stop a lot of conflicts. Number two, if they refuse to listen, bring a few others with you. You don't need the pastor for this one. There are great leaders in this church that you can bring along with you that are mature believers that can handle this. Preferably mature believers, not just somebody that you have, okay? Don't bring somebody that's automatically going to be biased to your side of the story. Try to find someone that can be as objective as possible. If that doesn't work, there's still no reconciliation. You bring it to the church. You bring it to the leadership of the church. Well, that person is to be confronted publicly. And if there's still a refusal to repent or reconcile, the final step is severance from fellowship with this individual. The step that never is practiced much by people today. Everybody gets to that last one in churches, but most churches do not practice that last one because it seems unloving. And I wonder what Bible they've been reading, if they've read anything Paul wrote or what Jesus even said. In case you really don't, <laughs> it can't really be what the Bible's actually saying here. You're thinking, well, no, we need to be more loving. What are you talking about? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verses 11 through 13. And I want you to listen to the same Paul that just appointed these elders, who's now reporting to the congregation, and what he tells the congregation Corinth to do with certain situation in there that's pretty messed up. Verse 11 through 13 in chapter 5. But now I have written to you to not keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetousness or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunker drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Wait a second, Paul, let's read that again. Make sure we, we, we got him here, okay? Not even to eat with such a person. But Paul, you wrote 1 Corinthians 13. It's love. Let's keep going. 
For what have I to do with judging those who are also outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Listen, church, it's this basic. If a person is an unbeliever, we let God deal with them. If a person is a believer, the leadership and the congregation needs to deal with them in the context of the local church. That's as simple as it is. There's a very real danger for a church that tolerates open sin in their midst. Those who sin against another and do not repent must be separated from in an act of love towards them. Church discipline is rarely practiced in many churches today for the following reasons. Number one, the pastor doesn't want to lose any members, so he's not going to bring a lot of things up. He doesn't want to rock the boat, if you will, because he knows people are tithing. They're giving offerings every week, so I don't want to rock the boat. So he thinks it'll just work itself out. Unfortunately, a lot of those pastors are doomed from the start. Number two, the church as a whole doesn't believe in membership. Listen, church, this is a big one that is no longer practiced by many today. There are many churches like this today. They don't believe that there's any membership required in Scripture. And then you ask yourself the question, how could you take it to the church if there are no members of that church? Logically, it doesn't follow. If there are no memberships in churches, then how can anybody even be qualified to discipline? Which is exactly how it's designed. This unfortunately creates no accountability for the elders or pastors in that church either. Church discipline is practiced, but practiced incorrectly. That's another way that this goes down. Instead of confronting the sin head on with the saint, the church essentially tells them they're wrong, but they're still okay to do everything in the church that they have. You're wrong, but we're going to let you keep serving the way you are. Essentially, we'll love you back to the truth is the argument. I sincerely wonder many times as a pastor what Bible many pastors read. It is essentially as if the Bible doesn't really say stuff like this, that you ought to discipline members of the church that do not follow God's standard. Jesus and Paul only meant to love on people, apparently. Their view of how a church ought to deal with sin is not based on truth many times, but rather an expression based on an experience that they've had. Sadly and unfortunately, most of the the modern church today is practicing because of experience rather than Scripture. Well, I don't feel it's right. Well, I didn't know that our feelings dictated this. I don't like a lot of what this Bible makes me feel when I read it. But I have to subject myself to it. Else I fall astray. Just because someone has a bad experience in a certain church does not negate the fact that church discipline was still necessary. And let me tell you right now, church, there are not many ever that get it perfectly right when it comes to church discipline, us included. But let me assure you one thing. If a church wants to follow what God says, they're going to do the best that they can to follow the steps in the proper order. 
They're not going to jump to expulsion right away. We want to work things out biblically. We want you to understand how grievous of a sin this is before God. But it doesn't mean that we get to ignore God's clear instruction and do what we feel is right in that moment. In fact, Scripture says to get rid of the leaven because it will destroy the body. One of the most dangerous things I see in Christian circles is a lack of discernment when it comes to the Word of God. And I know many of you have wondered, why are you harping so much about reading the Bible? Why do you always talk about it? Because I don't want you to be ignorant when it comes to the Word of God. And unfortunately, many of you have built your walk with Christ on someone else's work. Your walk with Christ should be your walk with Christ, not your grandfather's or mom and dad's or your pastor's. You ought to walk with Christ because you want to get to know him. And unfortunately, many of us think someone else will walk for us. I'm hobbled, please carry me. That's our essential that we look at. I can't do the work, it's too much for me. Pastor, give me the answers, please. Your marriages would be a lot better, church, if you took the time as a couple to get in the Word together instead of coming to the pastor and ask for his opinion, a counseling session. Our families would be raised better if we as a church understood each of our individual responsibilities before God and didn't go around blaming everybody else for not living up to their end of the bargain. For good measure, let's see what Paul says in Romans 16. In Romans 16, verses 17 through 18, look at what he says. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. You ought to always be alert that people can come in this church and deceive. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of of the simple. As someone said, and this is important, it's important to remember that the Bible always blames division on the one who brings in false teaching, never the one who corrects it. You better get that right. When someone brings in false teaching, and if you're going after the pastor for correcting them for their false teaching, you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong side. And unfortunately, a lot of churches fall into this trap. They don't know the word themselves, and they go blame the leadership for wanting to follow God's standard. We've looked at some important things here that Paul and Barnabas did in building up their brethren. It takes all of us together to endure as a body of Christ. So what about us? Let's conclude. Where do you fit? Where do you fit? Are you making it a point to share the gospel? I know it sounds so redundant to many of us. But church, we need to share the gospel with others. We need to bring people to Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to where we want to share Him with us, with others. Do you pray for the opportunity? 
Are you currently investing right now in someone else's life, spiritually speaking? We're not meant to do this alone. Prime example, Paul and Barnabas, they stayed and worked with these disciples. Are you currently willing to go deep into the Word of God yourself and not wait for someone else to do it for you? Do you want it spoon-fed to you? Or do you want to know God's Word to a level you've never attempted before? If you're a leader in the church, are you an example for others to follow? Do you lead your own family well? If you're a part of the congregation, are you faithful in attending? Or is it optional depending on what day it is? Listen, church, it's not legalism to say that it's important for you to gather, okay? Don't you dare go there with anyone. It becomes legalistic when it's a point of salvation, whether you're qualified to be a Christian or not. That's legalism. That's adding to the gospel. It's not adding to the gospel by saying that Scripture tells you that it's important to gather and we want you to be here. We miss many of you that haven't been here for a while, and we know for some of you it was simply you had to wait for the the COVID vaccine. We're glad you're here. Is it beneath you to be involved with discipleship personally? You see, some of you, you have so many things that God's taught you over the years, and you haven't been able to invest that in someone else. And God's waiting for you to finally make that move, because He's been telling you for years. It's time to share what God has taught you with someone else. Are you ready, are you ready to quit on what you've already started, those of you that are already in discipleship? Because I, because I dare say it's not always a thrill to do this, right? You don't go to discipleship group that evening and go, every week it's gun-ho, I'm thrilled, I can't wait. There are some weeks like, all right, let's do this. But let's be honest, have you not left many times more encouraged that you actually did go? Do you find it yourself at odds sometimes with the leadership of the church simply because you think your way is better than others? Listen, church, I hope you understand that we care for your well-being long-term as a church. There are things that we have, as a leadership, implemented, particularly the Bible reading program, because we do not want a single one of you to be left behind to fend for yourself. That is the only way that you and I can fight back is to be in the Word of God ourselves. That is the only offensive weapon that you get to use against Satan and his demons. When Satan tempts Christ, there's only one weapon, one weapon alone that Jesus uses, and that's the Word of God. Your knowledge of the Word of God needs to be vast and needs to be deep. You need to bask in the glory of knowing Christ so much that you can't wait to hear what he says. Pay attention, church, to the needs of others in the church. Fight for doctrinal integrity. Do not neglect to be pure in what God's Word says. Do not neglect to be morally pure before God. Don't excuse what God prohibits in this church. But before you point out those things in others, see if you're willing to hold yourself accountable to the same standard. 
And that standard should be God's Word.